0: hello and welcome to another episode of the planet fantasy podcast this planet is inhabited with fantasy drafts of our favorite properties and characters fantasy casts of dream movies hunger games award shows and anything else we deem to be a part of our vibe on this planet fantasy rules i am one of your hosts the soup slut himself kyle my friend damon is way down in the hole he will not be joining us tonight instead it's another episode of our hostile takeover series so without further ado here's my friend michael
1: how's it going michael It is awesome. Uh, Thank you for having us again. Thank you for turning the podcast over to me. I will now be known as uh, Morton Joe Budden. That's going to be my podcast mercenary warlord name uh, when I continue to take over your podcast. But I really appreciate it. We, and the we will be introduced shortly, uh, a collection of uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells cops and criminals has decided to take over uh, this pod and talk about the absolute best TV show of all time, hands down. We will be hearing no arguments. That's The Wire. I'm gonna be on this. With me, I've got uh, dear friends, Wire aficionados, uh, Anna Faulkner. Anna, tell what's
2: up? Hi.
1: <laughs> welcome, welcome back uh, from the last time we were both on this podcast. I've also got Stu Campbell. Stu, how you doing? what's up <laughs> and and uh with us as well uh and i believe i believe that this is her first time we've got marina mcfarland marina welcome to planet fantasy and your first official uh trip down down this wonderful memory lane
3: honored to be here maybe <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's okay it'll it'll get silly it get silly as we keep going along so <laughs> Uh, We are going to go through and talk about all the aspects of the show. We've got 12 different categories. Each of us is going to have a nominee for that category. And then we're going to collectively pick which is the best of the nominations that we've come up with. Uh, each of us is going to go ahead and make our individual cases. After that, we can talk about you know whatever it comes to. And because this is the best TV show of all time, there are a couple of things that are excluded from some of these car- ca- uh, categories because they are obviously uh, the, the obvious winner of this category. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with The Wire, uh, one example of this that we'll get to later is we talk about the best redemption arc with the exception of Bubbles, because Bubbles' redemption arc on the wire is the absolute best. We want to talk and, and spend some time talking about some of the uh, other characters and other storylines on uh, this wonderful, sprawling show. To go ahead and get us started, we're going to start with the category Just a Gangster, I suppose, which is the MVP or the uh, the absolute best main character. Now, I'm going to turn it over to Marina, because in a show with this many uh, seasons, uh, this many aspects of what uh, life and policing and the drug trade in West Baltimore are about. We, we've kind of developed a, a formula for what is a main character and what is a supporting character. Marina, can you break this down for us, please?
3: I can. So obviously, yeah, the show is a, has a huge sprawling cast. Arguments can be made that like 20 different people are main characters. But just for category purposes today, the main qualifiers, to be a main character, are you have to be active for at least three seasons. You have to, and you have to play a major role in a significant plot line in at least one of those seasons. Um, there are a few exceptions we're making to this rule, which I will explain when we actually go through the list. But um, and then also we have to get glimpses into their into their personal life, into their their life outside of the game. Um, so, you know, either we go home with them, we see their house or we meet their kids or their spouse, we watch them fuck, you know, like something that gives us an indication of who they are outside of their job. So, uh, the following characters we have determined are main characters. Jimmy McNulty, Kima Greggs, Cedric Daniels, Lester Freeman, uh, Prez Bunk Moreland, Ellis Carver, uh, Bubbles, Omar, Avon Barksdale, D'Angelo Barksdale. We're making an exception for him here because he only survives two seasons, but he uh, has such a heavy impact on the show. And he's such an incredibly important character in the first season that we're going to consider him main character material. Stringer Bell, Marlo Sanfield, Bunny Colvin, and um, we're gonna throw in Carchetti because chaos is a (laughs) ladder. Because technically he does meet the criteria. So those are our contestants.
1: Awesome. So now that we know that, what we're gonna have to do on a show that is as good and as sprawling of the wire. In this case, is we're going to have to actually take one of these characters and take them out because they are the obvious best choice. That's Omar. Omar is by far the best individual character. He's one of the best characters uh, in television, in fiction. And Anna, why, why is Omar the obvious best character and that none of us can pick in this case?
4: Well, I mean, everybody's going to have their own opinion on this, but for me, it's because he's just such a, a nuanced character. So, you know, a lot of these, I mean, that's true of like so many characters in the wire. Like you can't just put them on one side or the other, but Omar's just uh, one of those characters that you're always rooting for because he's he's shown to be compassionate and like takes care of people but is also just gonna be an asshole who's trying to like fuck up people's shit and he's the most witty character on the show i think for sure like every line that comes out of his mouth is like the best the best uh could be a best quote um but he is just so interesting because the way he weaves in and out of the game as you know as it's called in between like how he's um, it's sometimes working with the cops sometimes trying to avoid the cops sometimes just trying to get at the the drug dealers but either way he's just like the way he's in the mix he's kind of integral to all of these different revolving plot lights that are like spinning like keeping spinning plates going at a like a juggler so he's always kind of weaving in and out of all these plots and so i think he's just one of the and his character is just iconic and so for that reason we were like look everybody thinks omar's the best so we just need to give other people some love too
1: i think that is wonderfully well said for such a complex character in a complex show to go ahead and start this off Stu, you're gonna go first with us bud
5: Okay. Say again. I just said okay.
1: Oh, who's who's your pick for MVP? McNulty.
5: McNulty is a gaping asshole, as he's been he's been describing <laughs> the show. But he was the drive. <laughs> he was the driving force of all the investigations. Yeah, he didn't do this, much of the police work. I mean, Freeman, I would argue, got more accomplished with the investigations than McNulty. But it was because of McNulty that they went after the Barksdales, they went back on the the women in the cans, they went back on Stringer. Even the fake serial murder in season five, that was the go after Marlowe. He drove the story, he called authority into question, whether going back rooms with Judge Phelan, or basically telling Daniels to his face, be a real policeman and investigate this stuff. He spoke truth to power. Yeah, he didn't make friends. He pissed off people who loved him. But he is the driving force of the show. And that would be my choice.
1: I love it. He's he's a, he's a great first pick. Anna, you're up next. Who's your pick for MVP?
4: Well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm going to say Stringer Bell. And not just because I have a massive crush on Indus Elba, but because I think... He's just one of the most interesting characters to me. I love a drug dealer who's studying macroeconomics. That just hits home for me, um, having studied some economics myself. But I just love how he's hes a person that you think you're going to hate because like, he's the bad guy. He's the one they're going after. But then as you see more parts of his life, you're just like... This man <laughs> knows what's going on. He is an intelligent man and um you just kind of respect the his puppetry, his masterminding he could he could give little finger a run for his money. I think.
1: He, he really could that's a that's a, a again a phenomenal pick I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna love kind of trying to decide between those two to start. Uh, Marina, who's your pick for MVP?
3: Uh, my pick for MVP is uh, Lester Freeman, uh, cool Lester Smooth, as Kima calls him, with his uh, rash, tweety impertinence. <laughs> um, you know, like Lester Freeman. I mean, he's he's sort of the the mastermind behind most of the code breaking, most of the pattern seeking, most of the uh, the money trail, like. He's really the one who who finds his way into these cases every single fucking season. One through five, He is a crucial figure in in all of the major detective work. And, um, you know, he we first meet him, and he's just, you know, McNulty thinks of him as a house cat. He has no idea that he's natural police as they as they <laughs> refer to it. Um, you know, he's just hanging out in the detail working on his dollhouse furniture, which, by the way, an extremely lucrative side hustle. Um, You know, it takes a few episodes for us to really, like, see what he's working with when he realizes that this is a major case that is worthy of his attention. Um, And you see him, you know, just silently slip out and figure out what needs to be figured out. You know, he's the one who finds them a photo of Avon Barksdale the first time around. He's the one who gets them d'angelo's cell number um and and you know you realize suddenly that oh this guy is a major force to be reckoned with and that's why he's been sitting in the pawn shop unit for what is it 13 years four months um they put him on the shelf because he doesn't give a fuck and he just cared about the cases and uh he didn't give a shit about the bosses um but you know eventually it works out for him he he acts as a mentor to McNulty, to Kima, to Prez, Beatty, even Daniels. He's a master manipulator. Um, you know, he gets all those subpoenas out against politicians. Uh, he He's the one who talks about, you know, follow the money and you don't know where you'll end up. He's really the one who puts that plan into action. And um, he also, you know, he seduces Chardine. <laughs> he really is like just a dapper motherfucker uh he's so wise he's so clever um you know wester fucking' Freeman. i i don't you know he he's just a badass <laughs> but subtly you know he's not as much of an asshole as mcNulty and uh he gets shit done.
1: Exactly. That's, a, again, a phenomenal pick uh, here. The it looks like a house cat and actually has the the, the most brilliant mind of all of them. Um, my pick for this is Avon Barksdale. Um, and, you know, so we've got two cops and two criminals. This is about how the wire works out anyway with everything. Um, I've gone back and forth with this over the years. Um, Stringer is the easy one. To kind of hue to, right? he's the easy, he's, he's 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 this complete opposite of what you'd expect a drug dealer to be. Um, he's 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 absolutely brilliant. I've come around to liking Avon a lot more. The more that I've watched this show, um, it's his air of actual menace. Um, is something that's not easy to play, especially, I mean, like Wood Harris has done everything. He's, you know, he's played high school football players and he's played, you know, he was in on a a winning time uh, as a a professional basketball player ready to uh, have his coach murdered. Like he's done everything under the sun, but him kind of chewing over every single one of his words when he's cussing somebody out it's just it's these subtle details in him. And again, like you know the show does just prove that um, there is something to his desire to kind of stay, not stay in his lane per se, but he really knows what he's good at. And Stringer doesn't quite know what he's good at. He's, he's very he's, he's almost there. He's he's um, you know, he's like a division two player. He's a guy that's you know almost ready to go pro. Um, Avon's a real pro He knows exactly what he's doing Um, He knows how to handle these things And I think he's I think he's had his heart broken Enough times In a way that Stringer hadn't That kind of gives him the jaded quality You need to survive And maybe not overreach in a way that Stringer does Um, So that's our Those are our four Uh, McNulty, Stringer, Lester Freeman And Avon Barksdale I'm going to wrap it back around. Stu, out of those four, those four nominees, who is your pick for the MVP of the Wire?
5: I've been thinking about this the last couple of days because, as I said, I wanted to do something completely esoteric with what the themes of the Wire is. And somehow I end up on Freeman, even though I picked Nignolte. I think Freeman is the kind of police that Simon would want to have in society dedicated, driven, and focused on the goal and focused on holding everybody to account. And I think that's what he's going for, and I think Freeman's the MVP.
1: Awesome. Anna, out of the four that we've got, who's your pick for MVP?
4: Uh, It's so tough. Even though
1: like I You're love so Stringer,
4: hard. even though I love Stringer so much, I think I also have to go with Freeman because of exactly what Marina and Stu said. Like he's just the guy who gets shit done, and I respect that.
1: Gotta love it, Marina. Who's your pick?
3: Look, I love Stringer. I love Avon. I I love McNulty. I see a little too much of myself in McNulty. I think um but
1: that's a different podcast marina
3: (laughs) oh yeah yeah this is this is not therapy corner (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with with lester you know um i do think he's sort of the backbone of the show in a lot of ways he's you know he sees all the pieces
1: exactly and i'm gonna make it a clean four for four Lester is also my pick for MVP. You guys have all said this better than I could. We're going to leave it there. uh, And and we'll move on to the next category. And coming up next for our category is going to be look the part, be the part that is sixth man or the best supporting character. So outside of the ones that Marina had named earlier, anybody else that's in the the show is, is on the board for this one. Anna, we're gonna go ahead and start with you. Who is your pick, for the best supporting character?
4: I'm gonna go with Bodhi, just because he is the most ride or die character. Like he is just always there. He is so loyal, and uh, and he's just funny. Like he always has these quips or these comments about the situation that are just like, you see, you see the board, you're you're on it, and so he's just like, I mean. He does some bad shit, yes, but he's just always willing to step up for his people. And I was res- like again, I respect that.
3: <laughs> I respect that. I
4: yeah.
1: love it. I love it, Tywin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Marina, who is your pick best supporting character in the
3: world? Uh my pick, um, you know, since we we couldn't do Omar in Maine. I'm doing uh Michael, the new Omar in supporting Michael Lee, uh, a mainstay of the fourth and fifth seasons. Uh you know, we first we first meet him when he's what, 13, I guess. Um, and what is it that Marlo says about him? Like small pup, big paws or something. Mm-hmm. Like he shows something very early on, you know, that he's he takes care of himself he doesn't he doesn't flinch he's not easily scared um he can be ruthless when necessary we see that uh when he has his um you know molester slash stepfather killed uh he has an independence streak in him he doesn't you know he questions the rules uh he doesn't just accept what chris and Snoop tell him. But he's also extremely compassionate. He's loyal to his friends. He sticks up for Dookie. He sticks up for Naaman, who does not deserve it most of the time. He sticks up for Randy when Randy's getting called out for being a snitch. Um, You know, he has courage. He has heart and uh, he takes care of himself. He takes care of his little brother, Bug. Um, He watches out for everyone who needs it. You know, he really has um, sympathy for the underdog. And you know, once uh, once the fifth season hits and uh, and things go down with Marlo, Snoop, and Chris, he does what he has to do, and he sets out on his own. Um, I I think he's an incredible character in a lot of ways, and one that, despite his fierceness, is still incredibly sympathetic, uh, and just extremely smart and interesting. To put it mildly. So yeah, Michael Lee.
1: A wonderful pick, and not just because he has my same name. Um <laughs> my pick for this is going to be Major Burrell. And,
2: oh. <laughs> and
1: you guys talked about these characters that have heart and they have compassion and they're fierce.
3: Let's go and in the they, opposite direction.
1: Who is somebody that doesn't have none of that shit? Let's no, say I want the spineless bureaucrat, and you know one of the things—it's it's this trope that existed, right? Um, with you know eighties, nineties, early two thousands, um, law enforcement shows and movies—you got your 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 hot hothead cop who's you know out out to do, make sure something happens, right? Who may have to go a little rogue, who may have to. McNulty's perfect for this. He's the he's the perfect mix of of ego incompetence that kind of presents a person like that in real life. Um, and it was interesting watching, you know, a lot of times when you're, you're dealing with these and this is, this is Baltimore, right? So you've got these, you know, black climbers within the organization. They can get in there and you see it later in politics, you see it everywhere. Right. Um, but these folks who know how the game is played, who know where their bread is butter, who know what's really important and it's not, stopping the drug trade it's not rehabilitating people it's not making the streets safe it's the stats and he is the perfect encapsulation of what they have to fight against to get any real work done um he is the he is the extra gear that's put in to make sure that nothing ever actually functions and that watch doesn't run on time and he was a wonderfully um menacing And he was confident. He was very, very good at what he was supposed to be doing, which is impeding the actual police work. That's why Dorella is my pick. Uh, You, who do you got for best supporting character in The Wire?
5: I just changed my mind. (laughs) I literally was going probably more with a six-man definition Mm -hmm. instead of supporting actor. If we're going to supporting actor, I think it's Bill
1: Rawls.
4: Oh, boy.
5: He's like...
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Speaking of assholes,
5: <laughs> I think you called Burrell like a toady. What's worse than a toady? The person who's kissing the toady's ass. <laughs> Rawls is just. He's the walking definition of a stats grabber. He shuts down. I mean. Sorry, I'm here. He is the bureaucracy of the Baltimore City Police Department personified. You need the stats. You don't care how you get them. You don't care who you screw. You don't care whose lives you destroy on the street, as long as you have all the stats so the people in charge can be like, oh, you're being a good policeman. Congratulations. It's an attitude in policing that really ruined Baltimore for the last 20, 25 years he is he goes after mcnulty even though mcnulty is correct because mcnulty is violating his idea of what the police should be he's a gaping i'm sorry to use that term again but that is him rawls is everything bad about the city of baltimore and the police department burrell is the commissioner burrell was leading it's normally not the leaders who destroy a system. It's the mindless bureaucrats. All Rawls cared about was advancement. And the funny thing is, he was not never going to be police commissioner, but that's where he wanted to be.
1: Wonderful. Uh, that's We've got two <laughs> brave members <upstairs. laughs> of the drug game. And two spineless <laughs> police bureaucrats. So we're, going <laughs> we're going to cycle back through. We've got Bodie, Michael, Major Burrell, and Rawls. Anna, who is your pick for best supporting character in The Wire?
4: As much as I love, like literally everything that comes out of Rawls's mouth whenever he speaks <laughs> to McNulty, like every one of his insults to McNulty is just, hilarious price Neg- um,
1: negligible yeah. irish ancestry, ancestry. yeah <laughs>
4: my <mind> yeah <laughs> but um. that being said i still got to go with bodie because that's my boy
1: i love it marina what you got
3: um <laughs> look yeah i mean i i love uh bill what part of Bendover do you not understand Rawls? don't get me wrong <laughs> um he does have some great zingers um but i'm gonna go with anna on this it's it's my boy Bodhi. i I'll, i'll probably talk about him more later but um he has my heart i mean he's he's a fucking soldier um jd williams does such a great job portraying him it's it's Bodhi for me
1: Bodhi was my pick for this, and Anna took it. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I saw that. I saw your face. (laughs) Virel was was my uh, my second pick. Um, Watching Bodhi, and again, we're not condoning this on the show, but watching him kind of eat the beatings that he gets from the police in in the first season, and then kind of how they, like, it, it earns him a weird type of respect in that world, um, it, are, it earns him respect both from the police officers who are beating him. Again, we're not condoning this, just commenting on how it plays out. Yeah. It earns him respect on the street. Um, he, and this is hard because I think a lot of us will find ourselves in this situation. Um, he outlives the structure that raised him, he was yeah. a member of the Barksdale organization. When the Barksdale organization was gone, he, was, he, he died trying to hold on to the one corner that he had left. He didn't join up with Marlowe. and Marlow respected it. Um, he's the exact definition of the soldier that you want and need. And the brain drain of those type of independent thinkers who were loyal is ultimately part of what brought down the Barksdale organization. You see Omar kill off a lot of them, um, but he's the type of guy that would have grown into someone else. He's gonna be my pick as well. Stu, what you got?
5: Uh four for four. Four, four. I for any other reason, he delivered one of the best lines of the show when D'Angelo was teaching them how chess is like the game. And basically he said, look, we're the pawns. We're the unless ones who are expendable. And his response is basically unless you're some smart ass pawns. Mm. Yep. And Almost his fate shows that even if you're the smartest ass pawn, you're not gonna make it. I think he was a, a firecracker of a character, and I'm happy for him. Yeah,
1: well, run away, sure. <laughs> run away with it. Uh, best, uh, sixth man, best supporting character in The Wire is Bodie, and we're gonna take a break. And we're back. Uh, and we're going to move on to our next category when discussing the greatest television show of all time, The Wire. And that is, <laughs> coincidentally enough, as we just said, Smart Ass Pawns or The Wallflower, the character that we wanted more from. Not because they were terrible, not because of anything. It's because, wow, we just want more of this awesome character. This show has probably more of these than it has anything else people that we just want more performances out of um we're gonna start it off with marina who is your pick for the wallflower
3: uh my pick for wallflower is slim charles <laughs> Uh, sorry if that's stepping on anyone else's pick who is absolutely not throwing a tantrum on video right now um you know but hey <laughs> we can all talk about him now uh yeah i mean swim we don't see him until season three he just pops up as like a barksdale lieutenant we don't really know much about his history but we know he's been in the game a long time we know that he has history that he's You know, he follows the same code that Avon does and Bodhi does. Um, He basically takes over from WeeBay after WeeBay is sent off under string, And then when Avon comes back, he's basically in charge of the uh, war against Marlow. And he's he's muscle, but he's also brain. And uh, we just... He's mostly just a silent lieutenant who hangs around in the background. You know, eventually, later on, he becomes um, a major player in the co-op and uh, a right-hand man of Prop Joe. But he doesn't—he doesn't talk a whole lot. But whenever he does, he's dropping wisdom on everyone. You know, uh, he. A lot of people come to him for advice. Bodie, Avon Stringer. I mean. He he has a code. Uh, he believes in the old way of doing things. We also see him in action when he partners up with Cuddy. We see that he's a man of integrity and who's honest to a point. But he also understands how the game works. You know, he has one of the greater lines in the show. You know, if it's a lie, we fight on the lie. That's what war is about. Once you're in the war, like, you don't back out of it. Like, you have to double down. Obviously, at the time that that was written, we were still dealing with the war in Iraq, so there were a lot of uh, a lot of real life political parallels to that. But yeah, I would just I would love to see more of Slim Charles. He's at the end of the series, really the only active Barksdale player left standing, and we just we don't know enough about him and we don't see him enough and. Uh, Amon Glover is great. DC native, so
1: <laughs> that's yeah. um, that is a terrible pick by you because it's <laughs> um, so I'm I'm left looking at enough a, a, a long list of other people. I'm gonna choose Nick Sabatka for this one. Um, season two was much maligned for a good portion of you know the Wire's history, and people have come back around on it. Um. Nick was in this was the same as a lot of the other you know underworld players that are in the wire. Smarter, uh, you know, than than the circumstances that he was born into. Um, ambitious, you know, he wanted to make something happen. He had a pretty good life. He was it wasn't let's go from terrible to just passable. He was someone that had a, a pretty decent life. Um, but wanted to make it better and seeing characters like that, who's um, who outrun their headlights in a way, you know, who who kind of I'm going to try and, and really go for something, not realizing that they probably weren't meant for that. Or if they were meant for it, they they didn't get the chance to. Um, you could make no mistakes in the drug game in, in Baltimore, I imagine in the drug game in real life either, um, but you can't make too many mistakes he made too many mistakes. A lot of a lot of talent there that could have been used in a lot of different ways, but his family was in what was rapidly becoming a dead-end profession. And again, just as someone that switched jobs a couple of different times, um, I, I really can relate to that. And he's someone who I wanted to see pop up more in the rest of the seasons, even after he would have been someone to pop up either as an object lesson or... Or another, maybe he joins a a different crew. Maybe he's in jail. Maybe he interacts with some of the... uh, They found a way to bring Prez Beluski back around. I feel like they could have found a way to bring Nick Sabaka back. And that would have been a lot of fun um, to see. Uh, Stu, who do you got? uh,
5: I'm talking with a guy who maybe was on screen for a half hour in the entire length of the show. Deliver one of my favorite lines just because where I grew up and where I'm from. I don't even know where I am anymore. You're in Baltimore, Lamar.
3: Baltimore, <laughs> Maryland. Maryland.
5: Brother Muzone.
3: Reform, Lamar.
2: <laughs> Reform. <Ruff
3: on. laughs> bow
5: Bowtie, scared the hell out of the major drug players in Baltimore. Prop Joe was like, I'm not going after Brother Muzone. He stepped up to Cheese when Cheese is like, I'm just going to shoot this guy dead right now and <laughs> put Buckshot in Cheese's legs and then you need to think about it before I put the next gun and bullet in my chamber, which is a real bullet, into you. The showdown with Omar in the alley. Yeah, it might have been one of the more contrived Hollywood-esque moments, but it was just dripping respect. I mean, Omar... Mazzone respected the hell out of Omar. They reached a deal. They worked together. They killed Stringer. Sorry, Anna. But (laughs) I would love to see his backstory. His origin. How he got to be this fierce and fiercely intelligent man. I'm going to see more of him constantly.
1: Wonderful. That's a... It's some brother Muzon is someone who didn't even come up in my research. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, ah, oh, probably can't come with <laughs> Anna, who do you want to have seen more from in the show?
4: I gotta say, my girl Snoop, like, I just. <laughs> the opening of season four where she's just trying to buy that nail gun, that's just that lives in my head rent-free and I think about it way more than <laughs> like a normal person
1: should think about it. Turn that bump like a motherfucker.
4: <laughs> Nail-throwing mayhem. Yeah. And yeah. she's like he said this is the Cadillac nail guns. He meant
2: Lexus. It's like Jesus, he didn't you don't it. know that. <laughs> like,
4: so great. And I just, just wanted more of that that sass but also, like, she's just also one of those ride-or-die people, and she'll also fuck you
2: up if you get in her way. So.
1: Perfect. Perfect, perfect pick. Um, so right now we've got Slim Charles, chosen by Marina. we got Nick Sabaka, Brother Muzon, and Snoop. Marina, we're going to go wrap it back around to you. Out of those four, who was your pick for The Wallflower for a while?
3: Um, I also consider Brother Mazone for this, so I'm a little torn. Um, I think it's still slim for me. Because I feel like Brother Mazzone works better as a bit of an enigma. Um, I think he's more effective that way, even though I would love for him to have, like, a spin-off show, you know? Um but you can only use I feel like he needs to be used sparingly in in the show itself. Um I would have liked more from him, but I think I want even more from Slim Charles, so I'm going to stick with my pick here in this particular case, but it's close.
1: Um so when you're talking about Muzon, you brought up something, and I'm actually going to change my answer here, Marina. I think Slim Charles also is most effective in being the absolute person who... He only speaks in the absolute truest way to, have, to have approach the situation. And I think the more you get of him, you might lose some of that magic I mean Him and Brother Muzon are really like the Robert Orries of of the Wire. They come in, all they do is come in and shoot threes and win championships for people. All they do is come in and absolutely win the scene. So my vote is actually going to be for Snoop. I think there's so much meat on the bone. She is a character you don't see anywhere else. You still haven't seen a character no. like her. She is indelibly bomber. like I would I would say that 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 is absolutely my pick for the person that if we got more snoop and again you, you if you could have found a way to wind her in earlier either without Chris or with Chris um I would say that's the one that is the character with the most scaffolding you could build more on to I, I do and, and I think the point you had about Muzon and some Charles is one where I think they're the the way they're used actually makes them the most effective. Stu, who you got?
5: Again, a change of mind. I mean, your argument convinced me because some Charles, the P.E.R. basketball term was off the charts with him.
2: Oh, yeah.
5: Drops the best bars. But is there more there? Is there more there with Mizuno? I think there's a whole world you can go on with Snoop. And I'm going to go with Snoop. Yeah?
4: Yay, I'm so happy, guys. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I just, you could do so much more with her. Like, I want to know how she learned how to just shoot a nail
3: gun like that. Her <laughs> Where's her tool prowess come from? Right?
4: Like, I want to know where she's picking up these skills. What's her backstory? How did she get into the game? I don't know. But yeah. That's my vote, too.
1: Perfect. So we've got our first our first one that wasn't unanimous, but
3: we almost <laughs>
1: all, all, no, all, almost, but I think we I think we're capturing the essence of what the wallflower means. And again, that's that's the thing about this show is it's got characters who have these very specific uses, and it's got characters that you'd want to build more on. Um, so it's awesome. moving, moving on from here, we're going to go to. Dead Soldiers, the uh, best, saddest, and most affecting death uh, in The Wire, except for Wallace. Marina, tell everybody why Wallace's death is the absolute most affecting, the one that will not be eligible for this category.
3: I mean, where's Wallace, String? (laughs) Where the fuck is Wallace?
1: Wallace String?
3: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Wallace is the sacrificial lamb of the first season. He's the most effective death of the series in so many ways. Not only because he's the first um, or the youngest, but, um, you know, he's really an example of of how
2: hmm,
3: how the best qualities the the qualities that we that make a sympathetic character to viewers are also the qualities that make you less suited to the game in Baltimore or any urban environment. Um, you know he has he has a soft gentle heart. He's childlike. We first see him like he's playing with toys. <laughs> While he's supposed to be working, um, he's he loves he's fun loving. He's inquisitive. He nurtures the younger Hoppers who he lives with. He's empathetic. Uh, he's sensitive. All these things that make him so sympathetic to us as viewers, that make him what we would consider generally to be a good person, are the things that that guarantee his demise in this game. And, you know, he's only 16 when he's killed, but it's interesting to contrast him to his peers. Bodhi is also 16 in the first season, and they're so different. Uh, You know, Bodhi tells him, like, are you a boy or are you a man? You know, like, stand up like a motherfucking man. Like, his his heart pumps Kool-Aid um he's considered weak on the streets because he he sort of falls apart when he discovers he's had a role in the horrific torture and death of Brandon, Omar's lover. And there's just something so heartbreaking and tragic about about his arc. You know, he try he wants to get out of the game. He's he considers going back to school. He that doesn't happen, he go, He ends up turning to drugs, he then is, he, then he snitches, then he ends up g- being sent out to his grandmother on the fucking Eastern shore, which I assure you is the middle of fucking nowhere. And the crickets are extraordinarily loud out there. So I'm not surprised he couldn't sleep, but also, you know, a little heartbreaking that like, he didn't even know what crickets were when he got out there, he, his world was so confined. He was such a victim of his circumstances. And he really didn't have any sort of escape, you know? He was just used as a pawn by the police department because they realized that he could snitch for them. And when they realized that he was dead, it was like, sucks for us and sucks for our case, you know? He was another character who was sort of um, just... All the systems failed him. And he was betrayed by everything he thought he could count on. And the actual death scene is so heartbreaking. Uh, you know, he's done in by his two best friends. He doesn't see it coming because he's so innocent and naive. He begs for his life. He pisses himself, and you know, he's he just Michael B. Jordan is just so effective. You know, like your heart bleeds for him, and you really see like it really puts it viscerally like this is the human toll of this game he's just a cold casualty of it but we feel it just so fully
1: that's wonderful um thank you for for spelling that out and uh, again of the many deaths on here that one is just obviously the most affecting one um For me, when I'm considering this category, not necessarily saddest, but most affecting to me, because it's it's very sad, but the way it's executed, I think, is perfect. And it's Snoop's death. Um, She doesn't beg for her life. Calmly accepts the fate that's there. Compliments Michael on having figured it out she's a true fucking soldier and goes out with her head held high and just the way she asks how my hair look, mike has always stuck with me as you know like yeah. we, we, you know we watch television, we watch movies we watch we watch violent things we remember the deaths that that affect us boromir's death um you know countless you know k2so's death in star wars you know uh, all kinds of, of ones. That one has stuck with me forever. And that is why that is my pick. Uh, Stu, who's your pick? Omar.
5: The reason I pick Omar isn't because the death was sad. I mean, we all loved him. And seeing him go out, it was sad. But the message sent with the death. It would have been so easy and so cheap to have him have a running gun battle with Marlo. Even to die in the, the eighth floor that um, high-rise with Mike and all, To go out in a blaze of glory. Instead, he gets shot, not even expecting it, standing at a convenience store counter by Kennard, a massive oh pile of eight-year-old... Yeah, I can't even... I will say too many bad words about
2: that. <laughs> he...
5: He was a mythic figure in the streets. He was—he was a guy who could wear pajamas, going to the store to get Honey Nut Cheerios, and have people drop drop drug packages at his feet. But he does not. He gets bumped from the crime report in the Sun because of a house fire, and the medical examiner puts an old white guy's name on his thing. He's huge in the streets. Nobody gives a shit about him in the rest of the world. I think that's the saddest fucking thing. I mean, this is the great, this is the great guy in the show, and he really, he does not go any further than probably about a 12 block area of territory in Baltimore. I think that's what makes his death so tragic and so senseless. I'm
1: about to start crying, dude. Jesus. Um... <laughs> Thank you for that, and I appreciate it. Anna, who's your pick?
4: I I feel like I'm talking about the same people over and over again. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to pick Stringer Bell because it's it's like i wanted him to be able to like finish his vision like complete the thing that he was trying to build and see if he could actually do it and like kind of get out the game even though he's like been so machiavellian and so cutthroat on the way up to getting where he was it's just like i wanted him to be able to to actualize it and then to just watch him go down like that kind of um It hurt. It hurt. Um, so I'm I'm gonna say stringer bell.
1: It's a wonderful pick, and you're you're absolutely right. We we all want him to build this empire with drug money. Yes. Marina (laughs) Marina, who is your pick? As we're all about to fucking fire, who's your pick for most affecting his side death?
3: Um, so I'm going with uh the ultimate smart ass pawn. I'm going with Bodhi. Bodhi's death in the season four finale. Um, you know, there's it was a fitting death for him. Most of the characters' deaths are fitting, but there's still something so heartbreaking about it. Like the char- the the conversation he has with McNulty on that park bench, the hours probably before he's he's murdered on his street corner, and he's sitting there. He's maybe all of 20, 21 years old. And he says, I feel old, you know, like he's been, he's been playing this game since he was 13. You know, he was born to an addict mom. He was raised by a grandmother, his older brother, James, as we learn later, like in the third season, he's been dead. You know, he doesn't really, he didn't have many choices in this world. And but he he embraced the choices he had. He was a fucking soldier, you know? Uh, he was loyal. He never fucked up the count. He never strayed. He never talked to cops. He wasn't a snitch. Um, he played by the rules as he knew them. The rules that were under Avon, Stringer. The old school rules of the streets. And then he suddenly swept into this new world with Marlowe, who doesn't play by any ostensible rules and he's sort of abandoned out there as the bark have slowly you know just been decimated by murder or well the cops and and he's still standing tall you know he says like just don't ask me to live on my fucking knees um And, you know, there's a callback to the to the season one chess scene when he says he feels like one of them little bitches on a chessboard. And he's it's it's as if he's realized that now, like, yeah, he actually he wasn't like he was a smart ass pawn, but he didn't make it to the other side of the board. And he probably isn't going to because the board has changed. The game has changed. And. It, it always breaks my heart a little bit. You know, he he really had faith in the system, and it failed him. And what do you do when the system fails you? Um, but you know, he goes he goes out like a soldier. He goes out the way he lived. He what does he say? Uh, like this is my corner. I ain't running nowhere. Like he's. Hoot and everyone else. They're like, just run, like as if that would make any difference. They would find him anyway. Like he understands his fate. He knows, he knows what he got into when he was doing it. But he was so smart. You know, Bodhi was so smart. And his death, you know, McNulty had such fondness for him because of his cleverness, because of the whole entrapment argument, and because he saw something more in him. Um, McNulty wasn't just upset about his death because he'd lost a potential snitch on the on the Sandfield crew. He was genuinely upset about it and uh, upset enough to, you know, upend his whole. uh, His whole beat cop monogamous lifestyle to go back to being shithead McNulty. Um, And I get it. Uh, Bodhi, great character, great soldier. Uh, like heartbreaking
1: death. Absolutely, these are these are four uh, four choices. It's gonna be hard to to pick between. We've got Snoop, Omar, Stringer Bell, and Bodhi. And as I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at two different soldiers who went out on their feet instead of on their knees. We're looking at probably the most dangerous person in Baltimore who went out and was probably forgotten. I think Stringer is the most affecting of these deaths. That's going to be my pick for it. Um, you're, Anna, you said it perfectly. You want him to get away with this. And watching watching the bureaucracy of Baltimore beat him down You know, he's had to be ruthless. He's been absolute. I mean, he's one of the worst human beings on the show. Um, We don't have to go through the litany of all the terrible, like, like reprehensible things that he does on a show about crooked cops, bureaucracy and drug dealers. He's by far like one of the worst human beings on the show. And you want him and you want his intelligence, you want his drive to shine through. And the fact that it can't, the fact that he alienates his best friend, who sets up his murder, the fact that, you know, these these twenty five, thirty, fifty thousand dollar bumps that just keep going into nowhere because he has to pay off all the ever unraveling layers of the onion of fuckery that exist in Baltimore for him to even pretend to be able to go legit, um, and he he. Accepts his death in the way that Stringer would, trying to cut a deal, and then get on with the motherfucker. That is my, for most affecting death. Stu, who do you got? I'm gonna go with Stringer.
5: The reason I'm gonna go with Stringer isn't necessarily it was affecting. It was for the show because this was like the first death on a show. Real because this predated Game of Thrones where you're like, how is the show going to yeah. go on now that he's gone? <laughs> and they managed two very good seasons. But it was like, at the time, I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> I think Omar's was more... Omar's more is playing into what David Simon's going for with his show, but I think Stringer as an overall affecting death, it's something that came out of nowhere. I mean, you kind of knew by the time Omar was shot that he was limping around Baltimore, people were coming
1: after him, Stringer,
5: it was kind of out of nowhere. And you would have liked to see what he could have done.
4: Stringer.
1: Nice.
2: Anna?
4: This is hard because you all spoke so eloquently on, <laughs> on your picks. And I know you're choosing my pick now, but I'm like... You know, Bodie was on my list. Omar was on my list. Yeah. I love Snoop, but I... I think I agree with Stu that it's he, you just, it was that point in the show where you're just like, wait, who's, who's this show about now? I don't know. Like, so in that way, it's so affecting. And, and you just don't, you just wish you could have seen if he could have made it. And it's, it's almost like a meta commentary on, on like the whole systems that are failing that like even this man who had all of these resources and had you know was going to community college and all these things there's the system is in place so that he could never he could never break out of where he was the station he was born into you know and it was just kind of like a meta commentary on that I think so
1: For those of you keeping track with the wire drinking game at home, we have now crossed off meta commentary. Please keep track of that and go ahead and drink. Uh, (laughs) Marina, are you going to make it four for four? What are you picking?
3: Yeah, I'm going to be a team player. Um, Stringer's (laughs) death wasn't the most personally affecting for me, but I did love Stringer. And I do see that, like, narratively, it was, it was, like, Bodhi's death doesn't have a huge effect on the narrative, um, and once again, he was a soldier. He was a pawn. Like it was his job to die at some point. Uh, Stringer, you really thought was gonna was gonna be somebody, you know, was gonna defy the odds, you know. He was a he was a property man. Um, yeah, everything everything all of you said. Uh, it was shocking. It really was uh, for TV at the time. Audiences were not expecting
1: that. You you really thought he had another move that he was going to get out of it mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was amazing. So we're we're 4 for 4 on that one. Uh,
4: Michael could we have an honor, honorable mention for this category.
1: Of course we can. <laughs>
4: This is a recency bias thing, but can we just like have a moment for the fourteen dead girls from the canister? <laughs> because <laughs> that shit was sad. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was. Away it was from rough. The, Like air. That was tough. That was real tough. <laughs> it
1: was. There were so many different ways that the human toll of this um, manifested, and and it's you know what that is perfectly in line with the exact thing that we were talking about with Wallace, right? Wallace is the sacrificial lamb. Mm -hmm. He lets you know exactly what's going to happen. A 16 year old boy is going to kill his best friend who he saw playing with Transformers on a couch. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And the opening season two with that is again, like this is the despicable shit that's going on on the other side of the drug game in the ports. And absolutely. And thank you for, for pointing that out because again, it's there's what There are cool characters that we talk about on The Wire, but that absolutely was a perfect illustration of what the cost was and what death is like in this world. Um, and on, on that, we're going to go ahead and take a brief break before we get back to some of our other categories. And we are back and we are rolling into two of my favorite categories for this podcast. The first one we're going to do is walk through the garden or the best opening quote. To an episode of The Wire, um, this one we're gonna have Stu uh, bat leadoff. Stu, what is the best opening quote to an episode of The Wire?
5: My list has about twenty on it. <laughs>
1: no I, no I was just go, know, man,
5: I was just copy. I've been looking at it the last ten minutes. Like, is it this one? Is it that one? There's one that, like, would be perfectly appropriate for today and the world around us. But for the spirit of the quote and the spirit of the show, I'm going to go with, it was sometime in season three. It's a quote from Burrell. The gods will not save you.
3: This is Baltimore, gentlemen.
5: (laughs) It's... It's a perfect quote for many ways. But obviously, Burrell was doing it because Burrell was going to be his petty, vengeful self. Like you can't, you can't fix the stats for me. You can't. Nothing's going to save you guys. The gods will not save you. It's Baltimore, and you're here in front of me, and you're doomed. But it's also, you know, appealing to religion, appealing to God. God will not save Baltimore. God will not save Detroit, Pittsburgh, whatever other industrial city you want to talk about. It's people on the ground will
2: save it. And I
5: think it's... It was out over a long list of quotes for me.
1: Another one that was stolen from me unfairly... But I love it. That is absolutely one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite uh, Burel moments. Anna, what is your pick, the best opening quote for season episode of The Wire?
4: Uh, I'm going to pick one from my favorite season. Uh, So this is from Prez in season four Teacher. And it's no, No one wins, one side loses more slowly. And I just... I that it just encapsulizes this whole series honestly but it's just it's but and it's also like just so true to life it's like everybody thinks it's like a zero sum game like no these systems that we've set up no one's a winner in these systems it's just like one side is losing more slowly I I just think that sums it up perfectly about how um, our broken and just systems work, especially the education system, which is near and dear to my heart, so.
1: That uh, is heartbreaking and beautiful and also true uh, with this one. (laughs) Marina, what's your pick? Uh,
3: All the ones that have been chosen so far are also on my short list. Um, and I, and I'm torn between two of two contenders. Uh, I'm going to go with the more meta answer. So it's from season one, episode six. Uh, <laughs> the title of the episode of the episode fittingly is the wire and the epigraph is, and all the pieces matter. I mean, from Lester Freeman. Um, And this is something that I tell anyone who's going to start The Wire, you know? Like, pay attention. All the pieces matter. And it means, you know, it's important within the world of The Wire, like, you see it, how all the different worlds intersect, how even the smallest characters can cast a large shadow, as some Mm -hmm. might say, and how everything does intersect. No matter how fucked up the puzzle ends up being. All the pieces matter. There's a reason it's the title of a book about the show. Um, You really have to pay attention to get the full picture. It's true within the world and it's true in a meta sense. So yeah, I'm just going to go with that one.
1: I love it. That was another of the ones on my list. The one I'm going to go with is from season five, episode nine. Yep. Late editions, deserves, got nothing to do with it. From Snoop, Snoop getting a lot of love on this pod already. I love it. (laughs) um, A thousand percent. It is, it's meta and it's not. But again, it's just like, as we follow this series through five seasons, and watched so many good people die and so many shit people keep on paddling up the same, same river. We've talked about bureaucracy. We've talked about all the things there. And it really drives it home in the show's penultimate episode. Uh, and for me, that's the quote that I think best encapsulates so much about this show. This is a murderer's row. I do not envy anyone that has to pick from this. So we've got four. I'm going to repeat them for the sake of everybody on here. The gods will not save you. No one wins, one side just loses more slowly. All the pieces matter and deserves got nothing to do with it. Stu, who's your pick? The best opening quote from The Wire.
5: I think it's no one wins, everybody just loses more slowly. Again, I think in a very meta way, that is the meaning of the show and perhaps the meaning of life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Really? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you all know it I follow a lot of history and deep dives into <laughs> stuff like that. Yep. You see as systems fall apart over and over mm-hmm. again. Nobody's winning.
4: Yep.
3: Things fall apart. The center cannot hold.
1: Absolutely. Stu, we've got one vote for that one. Anna, who's your pick?
4: that's really tough because I really I want to pick mine but I also want to pick yours awesome. uh, I'm going to pick mine because I think it's more just like emblematic of the whole of the show but I really do love 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 deserves gotten. Up.
2: yeah okay
1: so this is so hard to settle on it it's like oh man this one means more than i thought marina who's who's what's your pick gonna be for this one
3: um i am gonna go with anna's pick as well that was my top pick no one wins one side just loses more slowly it really does encapsulate the show and life (laughs) in so many ways um There's, yeah, there's really nothing more to be said about it. I do love Deserve Got Nothing to Do with It. It was also, it was the only, oh, I guess, I guess I did, I did a few um, season five quotes, but that was, that was the main one, you know, and you see that in, in so many of the death scenes and so many of the scenes where, where people fall for reasons that are not justifiable, you know, like Deserve Got Nothing to Do with It. Like it doesn't matter what you deserve the game doles out with the game doles out and that's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, ultimately no one wins. One side just loses more slowly.
1: Um, this is really, really hard. And despite the protestations of our podcast producer,
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm <also> going to <laughs> Sorry Kyle. One.
1: I'm also going to pick this one. And it's, I'm going to pick it for a different reason. Because <laughs> I think even if it's boring. Even if it's boring. Because this is the perfect lead-in to we own the city. And mm-hmm. the absolute futility exactly. of the drug game. The futility and the militarization and the money and the stupidity and the logistics and the legislation that makes all this work. It was said by a lawyer who knows how to play both sides of this game. I I, I think it's perfect. Anna, uh, uh, this one is 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 marvelous in a in a in a show where literally every line of dialogue could be the best quote in a t- entire TV show. I think this one, from the spirit of understanding what the opening quote of an episode of the wire is. This is it right here.
4: I do have to give shouts to Kyle because as I was driving, he was giving me for this. And when he said that one, I was like, that's it.
2: That's the one.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, Kyle, you also get credit for this one. So congratulations. It's even more boring now because five of us like it instead of four. <laughs> boring. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> boring. On that note, we are going to move on to the next category Here which is the best quote in an episode of The Wire. Not to start an episode of The Wire, but the best quote in an episode of The Wire. That category is called Way Down in the Hole. Anna, we're going to wrap right back around to you because you seem to have a a gift for these. What is your pick for best in-episode quote of The Wire?
4: This one is funny because I, I don't remember anything and to every time I hear something I'm like that could be the best quote exactly. So, exactly. so it's like I think everything could be the best quote and then forget it immediately but um one that does always stick with me because the spirit of it is something I say okay. to children all this time um is that'll teach you to give a fuck when it ain't your turn to get oh a fuck. <laughs> yes
1: oh that's great <laughs>
4: So obviously Damn. I don't say that to children, but I do tell them to mind their business all the time. And I just feel like that's in the same spirit and I I live by it. So <laughs>
1: that's oh, my quote. That is wonderful. Marina, who's your pick?
3: I mean, there, there are a lot of options, obviously. Um, I have a lot of like absurd things written down. Um, but (laughs) um i'm gonna go with uh, a classic omar line from one of the most iconic scenes of the show in season two where he is in the courtroom against levy and he says i got the shotgun you got the briefcase it's all in the game though right um, it completely knocks Levy off his ass. Like, never seen a motherfucker so startled. Um, and it's just emblematic of, of the whole game. Like, it works. It works in both directions. There are scumbags feeding off the underclasses, feeding off these these trades that that bleed the lifeblood out of the city, or however Levy chooses to dramatize it in that scene um and omar just calls it like it is you know like you and i were the same in some ways except that omar is honest about who he is he doesn't uh he has no shame he has he has no shame like he just you know he does what he does and it's in some ways an honest trade Um, but what really is the difference between him and levy And Levy makes a lot more money off of it, and he also keeps violent offenders out of jail, which, you know, I don't support the prison system in general, but who's doing the most bad in this situation? It's not Omar. Um, So, yeah, I got the shotgun. You got the briefcase. Just classic.
1: It's Wonderful. Um, This is one of the harder ones. And I'm gonna settle on one that we internally discussed beforehand, and I'm surprised you didn't pick it because uh, yeah. this was the one that we discussed <laughs> before. Couldn't
2: um, mm-hmm. remember it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. Uh, Classic. You know the difference between me and you? I, I bleed, bleed red, green. and you, you bleed, bleed green. The in the beginning, the partnership of avon and stringer holding together this drug empire where they've invested so much money they got llcs they're owning they're washing their own money they own a funeral parlor they want the funeral they want the the printing shop they have to run like an actual business you've got the muscle and the brains and each of them has them in turn watching those two come apart at the seams watching that friendship calcify and then break there's a part in season one right, right after kima gets shot where avon is furious rightly so and stringer is like that's my bad and he accepts it and they move on they they go straight on right he he knows he's got enough cachet and that friendship and in that organization to say this is on me i screwed up I'm going to make it right. And watching that friendship deteriorate is, we talked about it earlier, it's one of the saddest things because you want these two criminals to succeed. It's insane. (laughs) That's my pick. Stu.
5: I was actually not going to go meta on this one. I had the perfect quote picked out, the quote that I actually had used in my job before to (laughs) other people. (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately, that was that's what you get for giving a fuck when it's not your turn to give a fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. So
2: I'm <laughs> going to
5: go absolutely meta and sim- and almost simple with one of Omar's most famous quotes: "You come at the king, you best not miss."
3: Is yeah, that eligible something. since it's an intro quote?
5: No. Yeah, um. quotes are intro quotes.
3: It is one. It is.
1: It technically is an intro quote. Yes. So it would not have been eligible for this category.
3: Okay, then I'm going to go
5: funny. I'm going to go funny. I have another one because I was going to mention this anyways, an honorable mention. Stringer Bell, the funniest thing he ever said is are you taking notes
2: on a a criminal criminal (laughs) fucking (laughs) conspiracy? Yes. That was
5: a good one too. This is a show that isn't really funny but that is the most hilarious thing i think on this show <laughs> and it's strange like i'm trying to be a massive success and i have this guy over
4: here perfect. taking notes <laughs> <on Perfect. experience.
2: laughs>
4: that's that's right that is right that's it amazing
3: is, i love so- that one yeah <laughs> That another, was from my runner-ups.
4: <laughs> another honorable mention, those two, is like Stringer Bell trying to explain elasticity to the corner boys. Yep. He runs in his coffee shop. And, <laughs> and of course, oh. it would be longer than a
5: quote, but the forty-degree day rant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Forty-degree
1: day. Yep. <laughs> There's so many honorable mentions. I think we we I think we kind of ran the gamut of what this show is. Um, I'm gonna repeat these back here. Um, that'll teach you to give a fuck when it's not your turn I still, I still love that uh, I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase all in the game I bleed red, you bleed green <laughs> are you taking notes on a criminal buffer? which is I haven't had to use that one in real life yet, but just in case I never have to, it's there Um, we're going to go back to Anna, what is your pick for this category?
4: Oh my god, I don't know. Um I gotta stick with mine even though I love stews so
1: much. <laughs> I love it. Maria, what do you got? <laughs>
3: Uh, I'm going to go with stews just because I love it so much, <laughs> and it was a, a runner-up for me. I wasn't sure if I would go serious or funny, um, but is he taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? It's <laughs> is, is just a fucking classic. I have used it in my daily life. Um, usually, it's not completely relevant, but it's relevant <laughs> enough, you know? Um <laughs> I love it so much. The whole use of like shamrock and string with Robert's (laughs) rules of orders in those meetings is just, it's so hilarious to me. Like they're applying all these legitimate rules to a completely illegitimate enterprise. And it's just, it's classic stringer bell. (laughs) I love it.
1: It is. I would have picked the elastic and elastic product. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can can just watch everyone around him. have no clue what he's talking (laughs) about. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to stick with mine. I think watching those two characters go down that road and end up at that spot. Yeah. is super sad to me and it it solidifies like like you talked about before Game of Thrones where you didn't know how this show was going to go on. I mean, you'd already seen them phase McNulty off of, you know, off of the show and back on um, but to lose the Barksdales, I mean, how do you how do you pivot from that? And obviously they, they do into season four, which is which is about children and which brings Marlo. In. But that, to me, that is the one. So I'm going to go ahead and vote for mine. And we've got three votes spread out. Marina, you can either totally mess this up and let Kyle be the tiebreaker or you can be the tiebreaker yourself. What's your pick?
3: Well, I already picked it. Marina no, no,
1: picked it. no. I'm the tiebreaker. Right Stu! Now. Stu! <laughs> Stu! I was reading the wrong category. I'm sorry. Stu, you're the tiebreaker.
5: And of course, I'm going to go with the one that I have used appropriately in real life. <laughs> yeah. That's what you get for giving a fuck when it's not your yeah, turn to give will.
1: a fuck. So
3: <laughs> Kyle's gonna have to be a tiebreaker. No,
1: no, no. no. That's two, two picks for that one.
3: Two
1: oh, right, right. Picks right picks okay, okay, one wins. okay. Gotcha. Because that one wins. Ah, uh, there we go. Actually, so, no. He
3: didn't
5: say that. Kyle bunked. Did.
1: yeah it's bunk yeah that's a bunk quote um we're gonna keep rolling on into our next category and that is best redemption arc or a thin line between heaven and here and as with some of our other categories this is one that has a very obvious answer it's not going to be eligible Stu, can you tell us why bubbles is the best redemption arc on the show
5: because bubbles is basically the definition of a hollywood redemption arc Mm -hmm. he destroyed his personal relationships through drugs he destroyed his family through drugs well we hear of a son living with his mother he destroyed Mm -hmm. his family through drugs he drove himself into the streets he reaches Bottoms upon bottoms upon bottoms. He thinks he reaches the bottom like late season one, early season two, and Whalen's like, "You haven't even seen the bottom of the shaft yet, dude." He wants to get out. He tries helping the police. He's what probably the greatest CI that they've ever had in the Baltimore Police Department. The the hat gig, the hat thing, where it's like, "Okay, I'll tell you, put the red hat on whoever's in Barstow Gang." he's the one who told the police that Marlowe and Barksdale were fighting because they were going under the assumption that Marlowe was just a lieutenant of Stringer. He hit so far bottom though with Sherrod. Sherrod dying. He finally broke. I mean, he went home. He's like, to his sister, can I live in your house? He's like, she's like basement. I locked the door. You don't, be here when I'm home. Or not home, sorry. You don't be here when I'm out at work. And the finale, when he walks up the stairs, the doors open, and he sits down to dinner with him, her, and her daughter.
2: That is redemption personified. So of course, we can't pick that. It's too easy.
1: You're right. And it's and it's perfect and it's played beautifully the entire time. It's one that, you know, you get to see what it looks like. It's not just over the course of one season, this guy gets clean. It, you bounce back again and again. Yeah, there's,
5: there's a story in All Pieces Matter that basically Andre Roy was in costume, and character, sitting on a bench, and a drug addict came up and gave him a tester being like, hey, you need it more than I
2: do.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's wild. Marina, you're up first here since I'm reading the right category this time. Appreciate it, Mike. um, What is the best redemption arc?
3: Um, Okay. I was just, yeah. Anna noted that you could hear me turning the pages of my notes and I realized that I had not actually uh, written anything individually about this, but I have various notes strewn throughout my notes about it. Um, so my choice for best redemption arc is Dennis Cuddy wise. We first meet him in season three. He is, you know, just getting out of 13, 14 years in prison. And he's still considered like a soldier, a player, hardcore, um, And we quickly realized that he, much as he would like to still have that in him, he really just, it's not in him anymore. And he tries, he tries to put out a package, doesn't work out. He turns to landscaping. He's like, eh, not into it. He goes back, he tries. Um, And you see that he is in some ways capable of being a hitter, of being a player again. He teams up with Slim Charles and then, He's faced with having to kill someone who's, I mean, Fruit is uh, one of the least likable characters on the wire, so, who has already fucked over Cuddy. But even under those circumstances, he realizes it's just the game ain't in him, and game ain't in him no more, as he later tells Avon. Um, He's straight up about it. Uh, He realizes that his heart just doesn't pump that way anymore. And he gradually goes on this path to discover that he wants something more out of life. He he doesn't just want to do things for him anymore. He wants to give back. He wants to redeem himself. I mean, you can tell that he feels remorse for his past deeds. I mean, remorse is is the crucial ingredient to reverse. <laughs> a crux, and it's you know it's crucial also in real life mm-hmm. like have to feel remorse and and you know that he does but he also accepts that he can't change the past he just has to be different in the future and he goes on to build this boxing gym from scratch he manages to get some some startup money from avon um which is also a great scene He really works on his temper and on uh, harnessing his pride and being humble and just like going out there to get those boys off the corners and being like, hey, I'm not going to give up on you. Um, And you can see over the course of season three and four how he develops as a coach, as a mentor, how he comes to really care about these boys that he takes under his wing. And teaches not just boxing, but general life skills, you know, like there's this line where he says, "You know, anyone who's standing left standing at the end of a round, like he's not soft. Like that's something to be applauded. And you know, he he takes Michael. He takes Spider. He takes Justin. He teaches them things. He takes a fucking bullet because he's trying to get Michael to come back to the gym he defends his boys you can tell that he cares about them he's the one who sets up the the meet between bunny colvin and weebay to get namens into a better situation even though namens fucking little shit um he tries really hard with michael he he i feel that he really does redeem himself like you feel so proud of him towards the end of the series you see him succeeding and you're like it just it fills your heart a little bit because he did he made it out like not in any major way that society will recognize but he's he's made a life for himself and he matters in the tiny community in which he exists
1: That's oh, yeah. uh, That's remarkable. And I don't mean it's remarkable because you just read this brilliant and caring, you know, treatise on the characters because you stole one of mine again.
2: Yeah, so, of course. That's
1: sure. <laughs> what I'm here um, for. <laughs> Cuddy was my first pick. My second pick is someone who you mentioned and one of the good deeds that he does. My pick for Redemption art is WeeBay.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's a different thing. I mean, WeeBay is the he's the lieutenant that you need in season one and he eats the charge when he has to stands up that you know what what's the the and marina you've heard me use this line a number of times but fuck it for another pit beef sandwich uh, I'll salad. A few more. I'll a few more. <laughs> yeah i did little man yeah no just i mean he's he shoots Kima, you know
3: Little man shoots Kima. Little,
1: does little man shoot Kima, and then he yeah. shoots. Okay, so he he kills.
3: He does Orlando.
1: He does Orlando. Okay, so he was involved in the shooting of a police, um, and one of our favorite police <laughs> as well. Um, and he goes away for a long time. He's doing the charge that he needs, and his family's been taken care of. And he doesn't help out anyone really. We don't ever really see him do that much. But when it comes down to his son, who he knows is not meant for the game in a way that his mother doesn't, he does the thing that is so hard for a parent to do when he lets go. And that scene where he's just like, I just want, I, I just want my kid to have a better life. He can't do what I do. He doesn't have to. And that is absolutely the hardest thing to do on Daddington Island. Um. so WeeBay is my pick Stu who do you got? Press mm. yeah.
4: yep mm, god damn it Stu
1: <laughs> yes I more mean, anger
5: essentially within the first minute that we meet him he's shooting his gun in the office <laughs> you find out from the background that he married the daughter of the police lieutenant of the Southwest District, I think Southwest. I'm, um, but Vowcheck, yeah. who is a walking Dundalk stereotype if I've ever seen one. Vowcheck is just Vowcheck is like the ultimate just stab anybody, get it, kiss anybody's ass, just get to the top guy.
2: Yeah.
5: He does Valchuk basically restricts what he wants to do. Prez is in the unit. He fucking pistol whips a 14-year-old kid in the eye with his gun, blinding him. Even two seasons later, he shoots an undercover police officer. Mm -hmm. The rest of the police think he is a complete and utter fuck-up. However, he meets Freeman. Freeman takes him under his wing and discovers that puzzles, math, That part of the investigation is something he can do brilliantly. He's the one who uh, solved the beeper Mm. puzzle response with the numbers. He did other stuff with that. He found his calling. He becomes a teacher after he leaves the police. He's rough the first... The first year is a little rough for him, but he's caring about these kids. He's finding ways to get to them. And by this fifth season, I mean, you see... um, Sorry, my mind's slipping. Daquan coming mm-hmm. begging for money.
2: Yeah. And
5: his thing as Daquan is, hey, you signed up for the GED. If you sign up for the GED, I'll give you the money, no problem. But I'm going down there like next week. And if you're not signed up, we're never talking again. He has become a teacher. He's found a thing he can do well, and care for these kids, not pistol whip them in the face. I think he, I think he's a very good redemption arm.
1: Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Anna, now that your pick has been stolen, now that you know the pain <laughs> that I've been going through with Melina's <laughs> ass, who's your pick for best redemption?
4: I'm going to go with somebody that was mentioned. Uh, I'm going to go with Bunny Colvin, just because he kind of started out as just you know another bureaucrat trying to get his stats or whatever, like run of the mill cop district cop and then like the more he the more we get to know him the more he's like understanding the game and how that affects his territory or whatever and then he goes on to create hamsterdam which we haven't talked about yet which is one of the best things that has like ever (laughs) happened um where it was just like he kind of like made a legalized zone for for drugs to help with the murders and it did and it worked but then he kind of got you know his when his superiors found out he kind of got the sack and then he went out um it was in the private sector for a while but then he ended up you know being a school administrator and kind of following the same arc as Prezbolewski and, like, really caring about these kids and then ends up taking WeeBay's kid. And it's just a beautiful... It's just a beautiful story of growth and, like, learning how to... Learning how to accept the other, I guess.
1: He's... One of my favorite characters on the show. We haven't talked much about Bunny yet. Um, yeah, watching him, he kind of takes the two turns that that Presbulsky does. Um, so in this category, we've got Cuddy, Weebay, Presbulsky, and Bunny Colvin. Back to the top, Marina. Who's your pick out of those four for the best redemption arc?
2: Fuck. Um... <laughs>
3: Fuck. It's, I mean, I mean, it's either Cuddy or Presbo because. Yeah. They both start out. I think the beauty of a great redemption arc is that you have to start out pretty fucking low. And. And, and then it's all the more impressive when you rise. But I'm going to go, I'm going to stick with Cuddy. Um. Simply because he doesn't have the same resources that Presbo does. He has to work harder for his redemption. He has to go to fucking prison for it. And he then has to really climb his way towards it. I mean, he has to put in the work in a different, like, um, in a material way that Prez doesn't. Prez has to do the work on the inside, but, you know, Pres, Pres still... St- he didn't necessarily get his pension, but, like, he wasn't fired from the force. Like, and he, he pulled a lot of shit before he had to actually answer for any of it. I'm not really shitting on Prez. I mean, he he didn't necessarily get everything he deserved. Because he's a white man who uh, worked for the police and uh, married well. But... I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Cuddy. I just think I think his redemption arc was was harder one.
1: I'm going to follow suit and pick Cuddy for mine. The thing that sticks out to me about Cuddy is his interactions with Avon. Yeah. When he realizes the game yeah. isn't in him anymore. Mm-hmm. And I forgot is it's Slim that says that he used to be great. Yeah. He still he used to be a, a man and he still is. The fact that he's someone who can immediately say, this is not for me anymore, and I've got to go find something else. And the you know, most dangerous guy in Baltimore doesn't lose any respect for him. Recognizes, that, you know what? You're not trying to pretend to be something you ain't. I, uh, I've i always loved that that scene. It says so much about Omar. It says so much about everybody in there. It says so much about Cuddy that he knew it was time for him to do something different, and then he went and did it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Stu, who you got?
5: For everything that's mentioned, it's Cuddy. He started at rock bottom. He had such the... I mean, you see how much prison, when you're released from prison, they help you get back into society because he came home with a package to try to sell and the open invitation to be back in the streets. And he worked up from there. He realized that wasn't for him. And now he's a valuable member of that community. Cuddy.
2: Yeah.
1: I love it. That's three. Anna, who you got?
4: Sorry, Kyle, but I gotta go with Cuddy. Because <laughs> it's he's... just real. Like and I forgot about him in this category. But as soon as Marina said it, I was like, that's the answer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. Same here. So once again, four for four. We love it. We're gonna go ahead and take a little break before we come back with some more categories.
3: Nance was in his wheel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a, a man's appearance on the podcast. And He's not a
3: lot out of his cage tonight. That's orders, but.
1: Well, we are. Oh. You know what? We we were with him in solidarity in his confinement, and we are actually officially back as well. And we're going to handle one of I think the favorite categories uh, here, which is tentatively named well, not tentatively it's named uh had such fucking hopes for us and that is the best duo the best pair of characters in the wire coincidentally this is my first pick so i'm gonna steal some shit from marina uh maybe i don't know and my pick for this one is a two characters we actually haven't talked too much about yet and that's Kima and mcnulty Kima is one of the most fun characters, and maybe the only actual good, decent person in the entire show. Phenomenal cop is equally good playing the politics as she is at you know breaking down doors and doing the you know the the, the kinetic work, and she's a she's got a phenomenal mind. So when she's on Major Crimes, she's one of the ones that keeps keeps the conversations going. You know, everyone thinks of, of Lester and Presbo as, as kind of the brains behind all of this. But she can kind of navigate every single part of what being a Baltimore police is like. And she doesn't lose um, anything. And her and McNulty together um, are just brilliant. They're... Um, McNulty's a man whore. Uh, Kima certainly uh, gives him stiff competition when she's in that mode as well. Um, they're, you know, both kind of work hard, play hard um, characters, and we see them both kind of end up you know kind of messing up their family lives because they actually care about doing great police work. That's my pick for duo. Uh, Stu, who you got?
5: I'm gonna go the anti McNulty. I'm uh, sorry, I do Bunk and McNulty. Yeah. Who, where well, McNulty and Kima kind of work together like as a good pair. Bunk and McNulty are like horrible for each other, but they're good friends and they feed off each other. McNulty and Bunk are the ones who end up down in the train yards getting drunk at three o'clock in the morning. Bunk wants to take a piss on the tracks. McNulty looks like he's just going to stand there and play chicken with an oncoming train. McNulty... <laughs> Bunk is the one who... That's what you get comment is for McNulty when he's going to answer a, a call. They're they are great friends. They're perfect for each other. But you got to believe Bunk is the bad angel on McNulty's shoulder. <laughs> great pair. I mean... I'm actually liking Wendell Price a whole hell of a lot
2: right now. So mm-hmm.
1: smokes a mean cigar too. You can't you can't forget oh. that part about about bunk. Um, Anna, who do you have for best duo?
4: Well, Stu stole my first choice. So I got <laughs> back. Um, I've got a couple others, but I think I'm going to go with Bubbles and Kima, just because their relationship is so special. Like you meet them when, you know, it's Kima's CI from back in the day and they, she brings him back and he was so key to a lot of their understanding of what's going on on the streets and just the way they banter and riff off of each other is so funny. And, and then just like the true friendship that they have where like, Bubbles goes to chemo when he's trying to get clean, and just, you know, asked her for the money to to help him get his life started on the straight and narrow. And she's just like, "Yeah, I'll do that." But then, like, does it end up being able to? Because she gets shot, and it's just like so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're still able to continue on after that. And I just think that's it's it's a good it's a good combo for sure.
2: Marina, use your pick?
3: Anna, how upset would you be if I choose Ziggy and his duck? <laughs> I would be real bad. Get
2: out of here, get okay. out of here.
3: Um, I also, like, how upset would you have been if I had chosen Ziggy's duck or Cheese's dog as saddest death?
4: I would be really pissed off.
3: <laughs> okay, no, Um. so, <laughs> but I am gonna go with a more fun one here. Y'all stole the more touching, emotional ones. So I'm going to go best duo, Omar, Brother Mazone. You know, they really only have two or three scenes together total. But you can really see that they have a mutual respect, as we've already addressed earlier in this pod. Uh, Like recognizes like. They're both sort of mavericks. They both have strict codes that they stick to. And uh, a lot of that those codes overlap, even though they clearly live very different lifestyles. Uh, Brother Mazone reads the more conservative um, magazines and newspapers. Uh, I believe we're supposed to assume that he's a black Muslim. So probably not entirely approving of Omar's lifestyle, if that's what we want to call it. Um, but they don't really let any of that get in the way of it. You know, they, the, the second time they meet, it's in the alley. It's the Western style showdown. It's a classic scene, even if it's a bit over the top, but it's fantastically entertaining. And they're just, they're having, you know, a dick measuring contest about their guns. Like, you know, uh, this range at this caliber, even if I miss, I can't miss. Like, yeah. and they realized that they could just go all night standing there with their guns pointed at each other. Um, they knew, like, the first time they meet is when Omar was tricked into thinking that Mazon had played a role in Brandon's death. And you see that he very quickly realizes that he was conned by Stringer. And, um... You know, Mazone says, "I'm at peace with my God." With my God, and he realizes, "Oh, this is this is not this is not the one." And yeah. he calls an ambulance for him. And you can tell that there's even there after he has shot him, potentially mortally. Um, there's still a mutual respect. Uh, they get what the other one is about, and it's even more so when they team up against Stringer because they realize that he is the one who. Uh, you know, why is that running in the first place? And you really see them cooperating and working together, even while they're taking digs at each other. Uh, Brother Mazone makes a <laughs> makes a comment about how it must be unusual for Omar to go in through the front. And uh, <laughs> Omar's like, okay, bow tie, just make sure you're ready. You know, they don't, they're not taking it personal. They just respect each other for the professionals that they are and they take care of business. They get rid of their mutual enemy. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the start of a beautiful friendship as some might say.
1: So potentially mortally wounded shit talking each other. They've potentially been (laughs) conned and Marina likes them. Marina, you must work in the restaurant industry, don't you?
3: Oh, how did you guess? <laughs>
1: I, I do not know. I do not. Do know. I
3: not seem emotionally adjusted?
2: <laughs>
1: Interestingly, you can see you're related to the cold blooded killers. Um, we've got four great choices here uh, Kima and McNulty, Bunk and McNulty, Bubbles and Kima, and Omar and Brother Ruzon. Uh I'm going to pick Kima and McNulty. We don't have Kima anywhere else on this list, and she needs to be represented somehow in the bests. Watching two competent police officers try to do the real work that would affect a community, I think is, and you see it in We Own the City as well. Um, you know, fighting the good fight for the right reasons, um, it's something that I think only shows up on here a couple of times. And watching these two be able to both work the caseload, work the kinetic pieces, um, and, and also, you know, to to use their political influence, whether it's McNulty with Judge Phelan or, or Kima, just knowing how to talk to Daniels and any number of other higher-ups. Uh, they're getting my vote. Stu, what do you got?
2: Oh,
5: I so much want to go with Omar on I mean, one of my favorite line deliveries in that whole show is when Muzone's like, brother, I have a question to ask you, and Omar's like, Omar, listen in. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right for one reason. Kima is getting no love in this show. I have to go with Kima all day.
1: Anna, who you got? Um,
4: Marina made a good case. And uh, I love Kima too, but I still I have to go with Bunk and McNulty simply because they're able to pull off a whole scene of dialogue. Only say the (laughs) word fuck. Yeah. And I just think that wins duo for me. So
1: (laughs) that is a wonderful thing to remind everyone of. It's one of the most perfect moments in the show. Thank you for making sure I got some love here. Marina, who you picking? Oh
2: no.
1: <laughs> Remember, if you pick Bunkin' McNulty, we have to bring in a <laughs> sideline judge because that would be a tie. And uh, he's been complaining the entire time that we're not disagreeing enough. and He doesn't get enough to do. So I'm just letting you know that. <laughs> um
3: I feel like I know how Kyle would decide this, but, uh, yeah, let's, let's test it out and see. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. I'll go bunk McNulty there. They are the classic duo. They're the yeah. most obvious one. They have the fuck scene. They have their good cop, bad cop routine down to a science. They have fucking numbers for their wingman routines and mm-hmm. bars. Yep. So, like we're going to do a number one tonight. We're going to do a number two. Like, um, they have each other's backs. It is a beautiful partnership um, that goes a bit off the rails in season five, for good reasons. Um, but they are the, yeah, I mean, they're the classic, most obvious duo of the show. And uh, there's there are so many good lines between them. Like, I just, it's hard to know where to start um so yes let's let's hear it kyle let's break this tie
0: so okay so on one hand you have first of all the chema pairing that should be in this tie should be chema and bubbles but because that's not getting a vote that's that's fine um you have chema and mcnulty right y'all have already said better than i could about why they work and why especially michael i appreciate what you said about how they're good police doing good police work um i'm gonna go with bunk and mcnulty and i'm, I'm gonna say 100 percent this is because of recency bias just listening to the wire at 20 and hearing the stories about uh dominic west and wendell pierce like barely surviving nights out and then coming back on monday morning to shoot these scenes in which they barely survive each other uh, yeah, it's gotta be it's gotta be Bunk and McNulty. A show like this doesn't work without this tumultuous, you know, love hate um, relationship. And you know, I don't think it works as well without them wanting to kill each other every other scene. So that's got to get my vote.
1: Perfect. We uh, we appreciate it coming out there, Kyle. And we are going to move along to two super fun categories that we came up with uh for this we talked about all the characters and everything else but because we are a friend group that sprang up out of binge mode and our love for crossovers uh and our love for looking at these fandoms what we came up with is a category called what's west of the western which is which character from the wire would survive the best in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire universe. Now, there's one character that we cannot consider for this. Yeah. any character great. <laughs> and that's fucking Carcetti
3: <laughs> Slash Littlefinger.
1: Because <laughs> Karketty is already in. It, it, basically, he's playing a similar enough character. Um, he just exercised more restraint with his accent. He's <laughs> for more than one season. Um, although he, you know, in all fairness, he, uh, he never had to look upon anyone else's, uh, number of shade of hair, you know, he, he they consistent with that. So, (laughs) um, Stu, you're going to start us off here, but who, which character from the wire do you think would do the best in Game of Thrones or in Westeros?
5: I think Game of Thrones, the main essence of Game of Thrones is conversations in rooms. It's not the fighting on the battlefield. It's not, it's political machination, like middle aged political machination. I'm going with a weird outside choice for this one, but I think Prop Joe.
2: Mm,
3: that was my number two. Mm. <laughs> two. Always Wonderful. with the
5: proposition, always playing the angles. Always has three balls in the air rolling at the same time. I think you could slot right into like the small council, Varys, Tyrion, Littlefinger, Mm -hmm. either plot a coup, plot a fight off of a coup, stage a war, arrange a red wedding. I think you could do everything. And yes, he still also has some blindnesses, which to be honest, Varys had. Mm -hmm. Everybody has. So go with him
1: you could really see him as kind of an Illyrio Mopatis, the Spice King of Karth type role. Um, there's a, there's a uh, I think a Bravosi merchant they bring over to be the Master of Coin under uh, King Jiharis. Uh and, he, he, and that always reminded me of Prop Joe. Just like somebody that's a little bit outside. That's a great pick, man. Um, Anna, who do you got?
4: Um, again, I feel like I keep saying the same. (laughs) And it's not just because I have a crush, but I'm not even going to know. I'm not even going to pick that one. I'm going to pick, um, I was also going to pick Prop Joe, but I'm going to pick,
2: um, Snoop It's kind of like an Arya comp.
4: Like she could just go in there and murder some folks and get it done Arya style and that's my that's
2: my pick.
1: I love it. I, I, she's a good comp for someone like that. She's the type of independent operator that mm-hmm. wouldn't, it's as rare in Game of Thrones as it is in West Baltimore to be someone completely unaligned and she could do it. Um. Yeah. I love it. Marina, who you got?
3: Um, I am also going to be sticking to one of my favorites here. Um, But I'm going to go with Michael. Once again, Michael Lee. (laughs) Um, Not Michael Gardner, though I'm sure you would also fare very well. Um, I think some of the main traits you need to survive the game in Westeros is... You need to be adaptable. You need to be clever. You need to be cunning. You need to be charming. Code switching, also not just in a racial way, but in a cultural way, and just a general adaptability way. Michael has, like, thrived in multiple different sorts of environments. He thrives on the streets. He thrives. He can do very well in the classroom. You know, he's perfectly capable of charming someone at, uh, you know, the Largo Six Flags like you need all of these traits to do well for a long time in westeros you know i I think of him as more of like a brawn sort of type also very important is that he is a solo operator he doesn't require a huge network of people to uh you know to keep him buoyant to to keep him active like he he's very self-reliant and uh he also sees the board, you know? He's he's cunning, he knows what's coming, he knows how to avoid any sort of coups or murder attempts. He knows how to read people. And um I think those are all extremely essential traits just for surviving. I don't know that anyone from the wire would like. I mean, I don't anticipate anyone actually getting the throne, but um it's all about survival, right? And I, I think that Michael would do well, he's also young, you know, that gives him a huge
1: advantage. So it's a wonderful pick. Um, just a little behind the curtain, the very first conversation Marina and I ever had <laughs> around this conversation, this is like, yes. this is one of our like core friendship memory things. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to hear you wax poetic about Michael because that, that was one of your, your number one picks. Um Mine is someone that the more I've thought about this, I think the answer is really, really obvious. It's Rhonda. I think Ronnie would do amazingly well as kind of a, she'd be like splitting the difference between Marjorie and Elena Tyrell. Um, someone who knows how to work all of the angles. She's fighting, she's playing the game of Thrones. She's not fighting on a battlefield somewhere, yeah. but she would be a phenomenal head of household. She' work any of the angles required for this. You see her do it with Daniels later. and Daniels has been playing the Game of Thrones himself um with a, you know, a, a social climber of a of a first wife, and then him and him and Ronnie get together. They actually um figure out what they do actually care about and can go after it. I, I just think she's a different archetype for someone in this world very similar to a prop Joe, but I can see her being the behind the scenes player who who understand you know she understands which judge to piss off which judge not to piss off her argument with with McNulty about Levy is um is one of those moments where like you can't just walk in and shit on everyone. McNulty would last about 12 seconds in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Ronnie <Yeah. laughs> might put might Ronnie might put someone on the Iron Throne. Um so we've got Prop Joe, Snoop, Michael Lee, not Michael Gardner, who also worked yeah. <laughs> well in Westeros. He has a bad knee. That motherfucker would not make it. Um, and Rhonda. Stu, who's your pick?
5: I love my pick. I also see the para- historical parallels of Rhonda. I think I'll go with Rhonda. She's like an Eleanor of Aqua team, just... manipulating people behind the scenes and getting what she wants, I think she'd be perfect.
1: It's a good one. Anna, who you got?
4: I'm going to go with Prop Joe just because I feel like he's just kind of that deal maker. He's always got a way to talk himself out of something. I'm going to stick with that one.
1: It's a really good one. He has a skill set you can immediately see translating right now. Um, Marina, who you got?
3: Uh, Prop Joe is one of my top picks for this because I did think of him as sort of a a Varus character with all his little birds. You know, always keeping an eye to the ground. Ear to the ground. um, An eye out. Always networking. Always in the know always manipulating things. But then I also I keep thinking of that scene where <laughs> the camera doesn't work but where like Rhonda just like crosses her legs in front of Judge Phelan
2: <laughs> in order
3: to get their semi-legal wiretap. Yeah. And uh he's like fuck it. You know, it's not gonna go to court. Well l- let's just do it. And um and then she and Daniels walk out and he's like You've uh, you've got a great legal mind there, and she's just like, "Uh (laughs) Um, you know, which ties into a lot of what Cersei says. You know, like we all know what uh, what women's assets are in the world of Westeros. Out, you know, if you're not including Dorne, which is far more progressive. Um, So, I'm. uh, These are all great picks. (laughs) Like, I feel like. All of these people would fare well in Westeros. I feel like uh, I don't know. Is it fair to discount Ronnie because she's a woman and women tend not to fare well in this world, or is that doubling down and making it worse for her?
1: I mean, it depends on how you know. We we talked about both survival and you know who would do the best. Would you know?
3: Yeah, like within the circumstances of Westeros. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go prop Joe. He was he was one of the first people I thought of. I if you don't have a fucking Marlowe running around to uh fuck shit up, which granted you easily could in Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, that's
1: Emery Lorch. Jesus, like.
2: <laughs>
3: there, yeah. I mean, there's, but um, I am I'm, I'm gonna go. Yeah, I'm gonna go prop Joe.
1: You final know, answer. Final answer. <laughs> you know, I I think it's disappointing, Marina, how little you value women in general. And I'm going to show how much I value them. I'm going to vote for Ronnie here. And what <laughs> that means, oh, my goodness, not again. There's a tie. And we need to have the tiebreaker come out and break this tie. Kyle, who do you think? would survive and thrive best in Westeros? Ronnie or Prop Joe?
0: I everyone. I'm not going to waste time pulling the valuing woman card. Uh, Prop Joe is easily the pick here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. It, it's Prop, Prop, Prop Joe is, to say he's Varus is almost a disservice to him, because I feel like Finny advice. Values- shit the bed and writing him in season eight. He would end up being a better character than he was in the previous seven seasons, right? Like He wouldn't go out like a bitch. Uh, So it's prop joke.
2: Yes.
1: Okay. I like it. it, It's wonderful, and you also do not have to resort to uh, any senseless pandering. I appreciate it. We're (laughs) going to take another break, and we're going to come back with our last two categories. You guys are going to love both of them. And we're back for the last two categories, talking about the greatest... TV show ever, The Wire. This one is called The Rest of the World, and it is the cast member who has the who has the best post Wire role, um, you know, in individual role in anything else. And there's one person, one actor who is completely ruled uh, you know. out of this category. And it is Michael B. Jordan. Nobody can pick a Michael B. Jordan role. Um, since you know, since playing Wallace, uh, he has uh, four insanely. We 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 could each pick a role that he's done. Uh, Eric Killmonger in Black Panther, Oscar Grant in Del Station, uh, Adonis Creed in the Creed, the first two Creed movies. There's a the third one coming out, which I think he's actually directing. Um, what's the fourth one I'm blanking on? There's a fourth Friday Night right? Lights. Friday Night Yeah. So him is on Friday Night Lights as well. So he is, uh, completely. Uh, you can't pick him or anything that he's done for this category. Uh, he's had a wonderful, 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 um, career since then. Uh, he's he even survived being in the Fantastic Four uh, flop. <laughs> uh, we're all excited to see what he does. Um, does next. And we're going to throw to Anna here. Anna, is there someone in particular who may have had some roles that you've been (laughs) high quality ever since you first noticed them on the wire?
4: Well, look, I can't say that this man has had the best roles, but he has had one that I consider outstanding. And I'm going to say that Stringer, or um, Idris Elba and Luther, the British, maybe you would call it the British version of The Wire, (laughs) um, is... He's very good in that. And it's, I think that was the first time I even realized that he was British and yeah. cause I just thought he was, had an American accent. Um, but yeah, he was just so good in that show. And he actually had real, he had a good script to work with and a good, he had it, just the emotional range on that show is fantastic. And he shows so much like internal anguish Um, just the way he expresses it on his face and it's just great if you haven't watched Luther go watch it but I was always going to be picking my man address so that's my
1: pick awesome and and totally surprising I did not know you were going to go that direction (laughs) um Marina who was your choice for best post wire role
3: um hmm. I'm a bit torn here, and uh, I think I'm going to go with the the ridiculous, slightly cheaty, let's call it a Mallory Rubin pick. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I am getting three and one. I'm not just going with a roll. I'm going with a fucking commercial. (laughs) It's a 2016 Toyota Prius Super Bowl commercial starring Ziggy, Nikki, and Frank Sabatka. (laughs) Um, which is to say Chris Bauer, James Ransom, and Pablo Schreiber. uh, You know, obviously season two, not my fave, but uh, this commercial (laughs) is just the fucking Sabatkas and some other random white dude robbing a bank, then finding a Toyota Prius as their getaway car. um, And the car just keeps on going and they become a national sensation because it's like a never ending chase. And it's just fantastic to see the three of them together again in that role. And also to know that most of America has no idea who they are or why this is so fucking hilarious. And um, that's my pick. I It will get no votes, but mm. <laughs> it's my favorite thing.
1: <laughs> it, it's It's funny because I went in the direction of the ridiculous as well for mine. My pick is Hassan Johnson, uh-huh. who plays Weebay, yep. is the love interest in the uh, music video that Maya did for <laughs> Fallen, which is the one that samples the. Um, oh, God, I will I'll blank on it. I can't remember. It's sampling like a pretty famous other hip hop um, uh, piano riff. And listen, it. As as someone who's an elder millennial who grew up in the late 90s, late 90s R&B, if Maya was chasing me, I was caught. Uh, And he is in her music video as the dude that she's like sneaking into his house and turning the shower on and writing love letters to him in the steam on his window in the shower. Uh, You're doing life right, my guy. Okay. You're getting cast in that role. We're going to go ahead and salute to you. Run, yes, I'm sorry. The sample is uh, running by the far side. Thank you, Producer Kyle, for looking that up for me when I totally blanked on it. Um, but yeah, uh, go go do yourself a favor. Go watch that music video. Uh, and just know that Maya is chasing down one of Baltimore's coldest blooded killers. she had good taste.
3: <laughs> I would just like to throw out there that Maya went to high school in PG County, to a public high school that most of my friends attended. Oh. Uh, you know, so PG. Shout out. Even,
1: even better. There's an even better reason to pick this one.
3: Exactly.
1: <laughs> Stu, who do you got?
3: I will be
5: the first one to admit my pop culture watches have a lot of holes in them. Same. A lot of holes in them. I did see Fruitvale Station, but of course Michael B. Jordan is eliminated. I, know. I was thinking about this question and going with a bunch of characters in the David Simon universe and I thought really that wouldn't be good and I forgot something early 10s were a crappy time in my life I was caring for my dying mother I was living with her I didn't have many escapes one escape I had was on Friday nights at 10 o'clock on Fox Fringe a FBI show. FBI show with it's like X Files meets whatever the head of the FBI unit was Mr. Lance Rodega. Yep, Philip Royals, and that's my choice.
3: (laughs) Well, if there's a tiebreaker, we I,
5: just for a
0: second. (laughs) Yes, one second. Yes, holy fucking (laughs) Sue. You are you. This is the the standing invite on every fucking episode of Planet Fantasy from this moment <laughs> on. Oh my god! Cool, great. Hope it goes to a tie so I can vote for this one.
3: This is what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> this is mark There's no way we could we couldn't have planned that one any better, Stu. It, oh, it is beautiful, beautiful. It was. It's a great show. Lance Reddick has a, Lance Reddick was someone that I considered as well. He has a lot of phenomenal roles, but him showing up on Fringe and kind of carrying a lot of the same Daniels energy into there. Marvelous pick, my man. We're going to wrap it back around. Uh, we've got Idris Elba in Luther, which, like, by the way, if you like The Wire and you haven't watched Luther yet, shut this podcast off and go sit down and watch Luther. It's fucking awesome. Uh, I can't
5: get BBC America on streaming. Oh.
1: Buy <laughs> physical media. Like, this is, it's that good. Um, we've got the Toyota Prius commercial with the Savadkas, which I'm going to have to go back and watch that. We've it's got, so
3: good, guys. Just YouTube it.
1: it that is, it's it's only like a
3: minute years and years. a half out of your life.
1: I vaguely remember it, too. Like, oh, it's like the pre driving. I vaguely remember that and, and probably didn't even register that it was the three savodkas. Um We've got Hassan Johnson in the Maya music video. We've got Lance Reddick in Fringe. Anna. <laughs> Anna. In the biggest mystery of all.
4: <laughs> are you uh, it's Idris, obviously.
1: One vote for Idris, Marina. Who you got?
2: Ooh, fuck. I'm just gonna stick with my own.
3: No need to overcomplicate things.
1: I'm gonna go with the Luther is the best of. The, I mean, we. we got a little silly with this one and had a lot of fun. Luther is by far the best thing that um, on this list. And it is, it's the only thing that's let him kind of exercise the full breadth of his talent. He was, you know, Idris Elba was kind of fan cast as the like, the sexy arch pick for James Bond. Mm -hmm. Um, And even James Bond wouldn't have let him be as vulnerable as sensual, as angry, as wounded as he gets to be in Luther, mm-hmm. um, it is Denzel and Devil in a blue dress level, like sex appeal and like pure competence, while also being a completely damaged human being. It's it's, it's a terrific show. I can't say enough about it. Um, Stu, what you got?
5: Considering I've never seen Luther. I have only the vaguest drunk memories of that Super Bowl commercial.
2: <laughs> That's all you I've, need. <laughs>
5: I've never seen the Maya video.
2: I'm gonna have to stick with mine.
1: <laughs> there we go. The winner here. Well, yeah, yeah. Luther, Luther, Luther took it. So, um,
4: sorry, Kyle. Kyle,
1: you you guys can have a friend. The next takeover is, watch- is Fringe Pod. Just
0: watch Fringe. That's, that's everyone, because I, mean, I can guarantee Stu and I are, like, the only people on Earth who have actually watched this fucking show. And, and Damon, but he's not here. Everyone watch French, because also you could have even nominated another actor, and Andre Royo shows up in a brief oh. stint in,
1: like, season three, and he's the best part of that season. So, watch Fringe. Watch Fringe, everyone. And now we're going to go into our last category, and that is title the Dickensian Aspect. This is the best season of The Wire. We're going to do this one a little differently, though. Each of us is going to take one of the seasons that is eligible for this. Season five has been ruled ineligible because it's not.
3: (laughs) Um, Not enough episodes. Sorry.
1: Yeah, it didn't make it for. uh, Technical reasons. Yeah, it didn't get its facts in in time, so we can't consider it for this one. Um, We're just going to talk about individual seasons why they're awesome, and why them together make the best show in television history. Um, I want to talk about season one because if you go back and you watch it, the cinematography's not always as great. Um, it's in an era where television had more episodes. And one of the things that you can, when you go back and you watch a season of The Office or a season of Star Trek: The Next Generation or or whatever, these great shows that we all remember, there's all this, there's this bloat in them, right? There's six or seven episodes you could just cut out, man. It's not really that important. They tried something, but this was a time when you were filling stuff, even on whether it was on network TV or HBO. Um, and The Sopranos has kind of the same problem. There's this man, The Sopranos is terrific, but there's. Five or six episodes in each season, you can just go. I nah, didn't didn't really hit the spot. Every single moment of, of of season one of The Wire matters in a way that no other television show really had. I mean, like literally, you cannot look away from your television because there are things that happen on screen that never get referenced again. That are so well, they get referenced again, but they don't get commented on. Um, and it's the first. It's the first of its kind. Um, other seasons are, are, are phenomenal but you never forget the first time you heard you heard D'Angelo give the Chicken McNugget speech right you never forget the first time you see Omar walking in a bathrobe you never forget Wallace dying you never forget D'Angelo losing it and wanting not wanting to go down with it you never forget Weebae being ready to go kill little man because he screwed up. The first season of The Wire is the one that will get you to fall in love and will get you through to the other seasons that are equally as good and are worthy of being considered. Stu, talk to us about season two, my man.
5: Okay. I'm viewing this as micro, very micro and macro about season two. The very micro is I was predisposed to love the season. My great-uncle was born in Curtis Bay, first person off the boat from Eastern Europe in America. His father worked in the docks in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it was there, but the story, the the highlights of season two as far as moments, has Omar's best scene, really, the courtroom scene, D'Angelo's death, which is absolutely tragic because oh he just started to realize that he was at peace. Mm-hmm. Even the tension, yeah. The acting maybe not have been on the caliber as the rest of the seasons, but the tension between Nikki, Ziggy, Frank, as things fell apart, yeah. the anger. When Frank came in, it was Frank, sorry, um... When Nikki came in and said Frank's in, um Ziggy's in jail for shooting one of the Greek's workers, and Frank is like, "Why weren't you looking after? Her? You're your cousin," and Nick t- comes back, "You're his father." The mm-hmm. end of episode eleven, where he's going down to yeah. under the Key Bridge to try to barter with the Greek. That Rembateka Greek, like traditional music, is playing building the tension, building the tension. He's walking and you see the Greek answer the phone and you know he's fucked. Mm -hmm. That is some great freaking television. But another thing with this season, it kind of broadens the scope of The Wire. The Wire, if you're being minimalist, and let me just throw racist out there almost, you could be like, hey, it's just, The black problem in the inner city. And season two is like, nope. This is a complete problem from the world outside of Baltimore. The drugs coming into the port. The political corruption. The gentrification. Everything's screwed up. The city is falling apart. And it's just not the drug dealers causing this. It's everything. And I think it's a wonderful show, a wonderful season. I know it doesn't get its love, but my re- most recent we watched, I was kind of absorbed with it. I thought it like held up together good and was much better than people thought think it was.
1: Wonderful, that is, and that really distills it down into, you know, why why you have to consider it with these other seasons. Um, you can't just discard it. It's it's a wonderful way. Thank you, Stu, for, for bringing that up. Marina, tell us why season three is okay. <laughs>
3: wow. Okay. So what they haven't told you folks is that they have, we have eliminated a category in the moment, which was best episode. And my best episode was basically going to be season three in a nutshell. Um Season three is my favorite season, even though I recognize it's not the best season. and we will cover that. Um, but it is my favorite. I think it's the most fun in a lot of ways. And I think that uh, my favorite episode, <laughs> season three, episode eight, Moral Midgetry, um, illuminates all of the themes that we get in season three and why it's um, important and fun and just um important is really is really what it comes down to yeah like uh you know in in season three you get hamsterdam and this particular episode opens with all of the all of the downfalls of hamsterdam which is this free zone of drugs that bunny colvin creates um you get dealers being abducted and robbed in this zone where they're not allowed to have guns because they're supposed to get police protection and there's this just beautiful poetic injustice as Colicchio calls it. Um, But it's the irony of, you know, like they are supposed to be protected in this zone and there are so many drawbacks to what should in theory be a wonderful thing for the public health and this uh, marginalized community that they don't usually have access to. Um, in this seat, like in this particular episode, you get the deacon going through and saying, this is a great village of pain and you're the mayor and saying, you need to provide all these resources to these people. Like you can't, you can't just give them free drugs. You need to have water. You need to have needle distribution. You need to have STD t- testing. You need to have condom distribution. And, um, so you see all of this happening, and also you see the the officers, the cops, bucking at like how like this is like heartbreaking to do every day to allow. You know, it's so much. It's so much about ego. Um, it's turned their worlds upside down, and you also see the rise of Carver as being a, a leader and recognizing that he needs to police better and bunny colvin showing him the way to do that and him becoming more of you know more more loyal in ways that he had not proven himself to be in previous seasons um you also see the hypocrisy of Amsterdam and how it just becomes a political tool um you see the rise of Carcetti um and the whole political plot line that really comes to more fruition in, this, in season four you see them juking the stats um more more close to my heart in this season is the avon stringer friendship and the disintegration of it and you see it so fully in this particular episode where Stringer is going to clay davis clay davis is giving him the spiel of you know crawl then walk then run stringer still displaying that street corner sensibility as clay says and he wants the money faucet. He wants the, ghost, the goose that, that lays them golden eggs, you know? There's so many great lines in this episode. But um, you see how he's sort of seduced by this world of legitimate business, but he's still trying his same old tricks. And you see how, how Avon, at the same time, is trying to tool up in this war against Marlowe. He's still, you know, he's still being a gangster who wants his corners. Uh, This is the episode in which he says, you know, I bleed red, you bleed green. You can really see the cracks starting to to form in their friendship. And just as importantly, I look at you and I see a man without a country. Which is ultimately, you know, that's Stringer's downfall. He gets caught in a web of his own lies. He doesn't really know where he belongs anymore. There's just so much happening here. You also see Cuddy. Cuddy's uh his whole reformation arc begins here um you get you get mcnulty going in an opposite direction from Kima, and we've talked about this relationship before you see Kima, you know she says in this one she's like fuck i'm becoming mcnulty you know you see her turning away from her relationship she realizes she's not ready for parenthood she starts going hound dog on her girlfriend, okay. as she puts it. Um, and you see McNulty going actually in an opposite direction. He's looking for stability. He's looking for something more. He's recognized what Lester has told him also in this season, which is that, Jimmy, the job will not save you. Like It's not going to make you whole. It's not going to fill you up. Um, and we see at the end of the season that he turns to beady and it becomes a completely different character in the next season. Um, we also see the the effects of D'Angelo's suicide or n- homicide, really. And uh, I think one of the most powerful scenes occurs in this particular episode, which is when McNulty meets Brianna Barksdale to discuss his theory that D'Angelo was not a suicide. It was a homicide. And you can see the way McNulty works, because McNulty is always McNulty at the end of the day. He's always Jimmy. And he's acting casual about it, but you know he knows what he's doing. And he's just sticking in the knife and he's twisting it. He's saying, you know, like she's she asks, Why why didn't why did you go to Donette about this? Why didn't you come to me? And he says, Well, you know, I wanted I wanted to talk to someone who actually cared about the kid. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean, you're the one who gave him the years. Um, and you can see how that just breaks her, and how it also contributes to the rift between Avon and Stringer. Because later in the episode, Avon discovers that Stringer was behind the homicide of D'Angelo, and you just see these these growing cracks and these growing schisms. And it it, it just you know you also see Marlo, the rise of Marlo. And how fucking cold-blooded he is. And that this is about to be a whole new landscape. And that's what we land in on season four, where sort of in some ways everything changes. Anyway, I I I love this season, but I, I choose to describe it through the lens of this specific episode.
1: You know, you don't always have to tell all of the tea, Marina, when we make changes. But that was, you you were right, that was the perfect way to describe everything and all the plates that are in the air in season three. Um, So thank you for doing that. Anna, is there anything compelling about showing a deteriorating uh, institution like education? Is there anything cool about that, about seeing it? Um,
4: <laughs> cool is not the word i would use cool well, is not the word Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um so season four is fantastic i think when i first started season four the first time i watched it i was like what is this nonsense i don't know these people prez is a fucking like whatever like i don't i don't give a shit but then like very quickly, it sucked me in because I work in education and I worked in school reform or I've studied school reform and I work towards it in my own way now. And it's just something that I care a lot about. And so for me, this season of The Wire is just one of the most beautiful pictures of how we fail students all the time by just having low expectations of them and like this is just a a very stark clear picture of it but it's something that happens everywhere in every classroom in america but it's it's so compelling and just to watch some of these redemption arcs that we've already talked about today kind of manifest in this season is really compelling and beautiful to watch and then um you, you you just, like, learn about these kids and their stories and their lives, and you just realize how heartbreaking it is that, like, nobody, nobody thinks that they can be anything. And I, like, one thing that stood out to me so much was when... Um, I forgot who took them, but they they go to this like nice fancy restaurant, like for, Bunny takes them. Yeah, Bunny takes them, like that to this fancy restaurant, and it's just like they don't feel like they deserve to be there, and it kind of echoes like a a scene from season one too. But it it was just so, done it. Yeah. yeah, it was so heartbreaking to see to hear them say out loud like they know what they're supposed to do. And they're not supposed to do anything that would put them in that sphere of life. Like they're supposed to be corner boys. They're supposed to work at McDonald's. They're supposed to just do the menial work of our society. And nobody gives a shit if they do anything else better than that or not, because that's what they were born into. That's what everybody expects them to do. And because that's what they're expected to do, it's, like almost impossible for them to do anything different and that this episode is such I a would- clear picture of that that it's just compelling tv and i would just if you haven't seen the wire i would almost even say you could get away with just watching the season of the wire but no that's blasphemy don't do that but it's very good and um yeah It's my personal favorite, just because I have these personal connections to it. But then all of that, like, is juxtaposed with all of, like, all this chaos happening out on the streets. Because, like, these power structures that were for all of these years are kind of crumbling. And then Marlo's taking over. And he is just so brutal and it's like the choices for these kids become so stark because it's like I either have to prove myself enough to be in this game, which is like way more brutal than the one that like probably their parents came up in, or I have to like muddle through this world with people like don't give a shit about me and don't expect
2: anything from me. And it's like yeah. such heartbreaking.
1: That is perfect and and, you know as as blasphemous as it may be that's how good this season of the wire is you could have someone just watch season four and it would be the most heartbreaking documentary you know made in the last 15 years um it's phenomenal we're not gonna pick a winner here um
2: other than it
3: not being season five exactly
1: (laughs) you could you could literally um you could pick any of these. You start at any point. Um, and you get all of the themes that David Simon was aiming for after a career as a newspaper reporter and and uh who is it? Ed Burns was the detective, right? also yes. detective. yeah. yeah. Most, I mean these, these are guys at the top of their gang. Um it's phenomenal, it's phenomenal to have seen them come back to something like this with Wheel in the City. Um which, which again was a worthy successor. Um, we appreciate everybody for hanging out here for almost exactly three hours. Oh, God. Uh, it's, it's been wonderful. Uh, you know, Kyle and Damon, uh, thank you guys for letting us take over, talk about one of our favorites, indisputably the best show it's ever been made in television.
2: We're going to sign off Phil. This is what we do.